There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Ranch Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon a 27 year veteran of the nypd and with me tonight is straight out of brooklyn retired nypd detective phil grimaldi how you doing tonight phil doing pretty good quick shout out to the retired detective carol raisins who was a big uh, fan of the show she's been on before i know she's watching tonight hello carol and thank you for tuning in and we have, again, a uh, crowd favorite, subscriber favorite, fan favorite, whatever you want to call it, but uh, also straight out of Brooklyn, but from a different route, former Brooklyn District Attorney, Chief of the Homicide Bureau, Michael Vecchioni. How are you doing tonight, Mike? I'm good, Bill. Phil, how are you, sir? Pretty All right, good. pretty good. And I wanted to also, Mike, give you a little bit of shout out. Mike, besides being a fantastic former district attorney and a defense attorney, he's also an author. And here are three of his books, Friends of the Family, The Inside Story of the Mafia Cops, Ippolito and uh, Caracappa, a book called Crooked Brooklyn that he, he wrote with Jerry Schmetterer, and his latest book, Homicide is My Business, Luigi the Zip. Oh, I got to read that. <laughs> I have that book, actually, Mike. I did start reading it. Yeah, I, I've gotten uh, some, some very good reviews. I, I encourage your listeners and viewers to... Uh, to get it. They'll love the story. The and they, we know they can get all of these books on Amazon, right? Mike? Absolutely. Audio book um, as well on Amazon. So, All right. Excellent. The big thing that happened today, guys, of course, is uh, the hearing that everyone was waiting for this hearing that, uh, you know, we had the probable cause hearing two weeks ago. Now, everyone was expecting this hearing to come up with more evidence and more uh, discovery material. And as someone on a TV show said, and I think Phil repeated it, it was a big nothing burger. Uh, there was really just, it was a scheduling thing. And the defense asked for a stay until June 26th. And uh, I mean, I think we, myself and Phil, and I'm sure you, Mike, we expected this. But everyone was thinking, oh, DM is going to testify. Like, where did they get that from, you know? Yeah. Just just totally ridiculous. Mike, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I, you know, it was not a surprise at all. Um, you know, and people might be surprised about the length of time that the defense asked for. But uh, given the amount of, of evidence that uh, that a defense attorney is going to have to plow through and, and digest before a trial, uh, I'm not surprised that the judge gave uh, gave that long of an extension. You know, I guess under the Idaho law, the defendant you know, has a right to object to that. Of course, he didn't because um, he knows that it's necessary in order for them to get for him to get the kind of trial that he's looking for. So um, I, I was not surprised uh, by it at all. And um, and, you know, by hopefully by June, uh, this defense attorney will have uh, will have gotten everything in discovery, gone through it and um, and, and then announced at some point that she is ready to do whatever is next in the, um, you know, in the procedure. 
So, Mike, I know what's going to happen on June 26th. They're going to ask for a stay until September because everyone's going to be on vacation. That's very, very possible. You know, in Brooklyn, the courts almost closed down for for the for the summer. They, I mean, not officially, but hard, we hardly did any trials during uh, during the summer. So I, I agree, Bill. That's a very, very, uh, very good possibility. Um, but you know something, if um, if Kohlberger is serious with his declaration that uh, he wants to go to trial and that he didn't do this, then he needs all the time that uh, that his attorney is asking for in order for her to get ready to uh, to try this case. Absolutely. Someone in the Magical Mary says, um, and Phil, I'll direct this to you. I don't think he waived a speedy trial. He waived a speedy prelim preliminary hearing. Two different things, correct? Bill? I, yes, I believe that's correct. That's what I, I saw correct. on the... Uh, Bill, you directed it to me. Yeah, I directed that to you. Bill, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, that's what I heard when I uh, watched broadcast news, uh, that it was the, uh, you know, it, it, he's looking to, uh, submit to, uh, extending the period of time before we go to court again, which I think is probably a good move on the attorney's part. They picked the end of June. Like you said, Bill, chances are that they're going to go into court in June, the end of June and say, well, you're on, you know, the scheduling conflicts with vacations, whatever. And they'll probably put September gives them even more time. However, it was a good move on the attorney's part that they're not going to, uh, you know, go too far out into the future. Uh, keep the judge on, 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 uh, you know, on their side, so to speak, uh, not asking for too much time. But again, one of the things that I did notice about this, even though it was a nothing burger regarding any information or evidence that will be uh, revealed, I think that his demeanor today in court and the last time he, he was in court, if you read his demeanor and I was watching it very closely, it almost seems like he's enjoying this. Last time he was in court, there was like a muscle pulsing in his face, almost like he was excited. I think he's uh, enjoying the notoriety. Uh, when he set out to uh, do this, he was looking for the notoriety. He wanted to become a uh, serial killer. He wanted to become infamous. And I think that uh, if you look at his demeanor, he didn't seem concerned that he's facing the death penalty on four uh, murder first degree charges. He seemed more intent on the excitement of uh, being in the limelight to me. In front of a judge again today, facing four counts of first degree murder. The quadruple homicide case that has captivated the country for months broke open on December 23rd, according to a source close to the investigation, when forensic genealogy led investigators to a specific family, and that eventually led them to Brian Koberger himself. The probable cause affidavit says that same day, December 23rd, police issued a warrant for Koberger's cell phone records. Days later, investigators also searched the trash at the Pennsylvania home and found a strong DNA connection. Police at Washington State University identified Koberger as the owner of a white Hyundai Elantra on November 29th, according to police. But investigators wouldn't have incriminating cell phone records and DNA results until weeks later. The affidavit makes no mention of forensic genealogy, but at the time of the arrest, two law enforcement sources told NBC News it played a key role. Moscow police said they could not comment. A judge has issued a gag order for law enforcement involved in the case. Koberger was pursuing his Ph.D. in criminology at Washington State University. An undergraduate student who had him as a teaching assistant spoke with Dateline as part of a two-hour special report on the murders airing tomorrow night. Even when he was standing in front of the class, it was like he was, you know, in a box. He was very 
mm, I don't know, uncomfortable, I guess. Like it felt like he was perpetually uncomfortable. On campus, the spring semester has begun. I expect it to feel a lot better. The dean understands students are still rattled by the tragedy, hiring extra security and even handing out pocket-sized alarms. Why do you feel like that's necessary even though an arrest has been made? We don't want students to be distracted from what the number one focus is, which is their educational experience by worrying about their safety. Also returning to campus, victim Ethan Chapin's two siblings, missing their third triplet. Their mother thanking the community for their support in a Facebook post. She wrote that her son had been inclusive, carefree, happy, just the best person you could ever meet. He touched lives we had no idea existed. This is a procedural hearing today. Koberger will have to decide whether he wants a preliminary hearing, which is like a dry run of the trial, or just go straight to an arraignment and you could expect further court dates to be set. You know what's amazing about this whole thing? Uh, and they tried to quickly go through this whole, you know, the case in two minutes, you know, and of the evidence and when it came in, because it seems like, you know, it all came in at the same place. And we know all of that is not true. No. Cell phone evidence takes can take three weeks to a month or longer to come back. DNA, DNA evidence. They had to identify the DNA, first of all, what, what which DNA belonged to the potential perpetrator. And then they have to make a comparison. That whole genetic genealogy thing, I think they fast-forwarded that. I don't know exactly the time frame and when that happened. We know that they searched through the garbage in Pennsylvania and they recovered his father's DNA, which was a match to the um, DNA on the uh, on the sheath, on the button on the sheath. So all of these things. And then we find out also, and again, this is all out of chronology, that he had reconned the, the house at least 12 times. And that night, even his route in the car that night. So would, we need a full and clear picture. And you can imagine jurors, a clear picture of when, where, you know, the old, the old acronym, the we, when, where, who, what, how, and why. We need all of that because that's how we think. But right now, it's all over the place. And now you can see the defense, they're going to try to build their case, of course, to create doubt in regards to the evidence. Mike. I, yes, I, I, I believe that if I was the prosecutor in this case, as I said another time on your show, that I would start out with DM as my first witness, only to set the stage and to, and to uh, create the right atmosphere in that courtroom for the jury in terms of sympathy. Um, not that, you know, because by the time this case goes to trial, these four kids are not going to be forgotten, but this is not going to have the hot, it's not going to be a hot button issue as it is today. So you need to remind those jurors that, um, that this is a kid, uh, who was in a house where four of her friends were brutally murdered. And, uh, and, and I want her on the stand first, but Bill, I agree with you from that point on. The way I try this case is I take it from the beginning as much as I can from the beginning. And that may very well be, if nothing else develops, this guy doing the surveillance of the house to uh, over those over all of those days and build it from there to the point where at the end of the story of this murder, I have the the perhaps, um, you know, the the ability to say that his DNA 
on that sheath was the key to uh, to us arresting him. And I believe, Bill, that the 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 idea that they I'm sorry, not the idea, but the fact that they were able to get his that print or whatever it is, the DNA sample skin cells or whatever on that sheath to match to his father um, was at that point done quickly because they knew, I believe they knew that they had their guy, but didn't have enough to get that arrest warrant. So I believe that they probably had the lab do whatever was necessary to get an answer as quickly as possible so that they could then get the warrant issued and, and, and arrest him. But the idea that this case gets tried the way that we see it today, no, that's not going to be what happens. It's going to be set out in little bits and pieces. And by the time it's over, that whole puzzle is going to be put together and uh, and the jury will have a, have an entire picture. So, you know, Mike, I believe that there uh, is so much more evidence that we, we're not hearing about I, now. I agree. Uh, to the point where I think that, you know, people be saying maybe he should plead guilty, you know, because I think there's that much evidence. And one of the reasons I say that is because a lot of the evidence we're hearing about now was leaked early on in the investigation. Right. There are people out there in the broadcast media that knew there was an eyeball witness. Uh, DM was, you know, they knew there was, I knew, right. we didn't know that until it was revealed by the, uh, the uh, probable cause affidavit. Chances so, are, Bill, that she was interviewed when the police responded and gave that information. And I'm glad that they held it back. We only found it out when the arrest affidavit for uh, Pennsylvania was released. But again, uh, that was something that was held back. Now, there was leaks. Obviously, some people in the media, as you said, did know about it. But uh, I was glad that the police held it back. And there's, like you said, Bill, there's probably a multitude of other uh, strong evidences oh, that are uh, being held there, back. There, there is no way that this guy slaughtered four people in that house and didn't leave other samples of his DNA there. That just is to me an, imp an impossibility. I'll say it, an impossibility. Um, it's just not, it's just not going to be the case. And I am sure that they will, um, that they have it already. And if they don't have it, they will have it by that, by that point. Absolutely. So, uh, Susie Chapstick. Uh, I love you. I love your name, by the way. Uh, I heard an interview with his lawyer and PA and Brian Enton. He said, Defense might bring up, how do you actually know it was Brian driving that car? I hope the prosecutor can cover that. Well, I'm going to tell you how. One way is that his cell phone is hitting cell sites in the exact area where the car is. Yeah, that, That's pretty strong evidence. The other thing is they'll take DNA from the driver's seat also and from the steering wheel. That shows his, his DNA will be – that's pretty strong evidence too. Yeah. And Susie, I'm, I'm, you're so great. You're in the – I love – Love the questions you ask in the chat, but a lot of these questions, I, I'm glad that we can answer them because if unanswered, they take on a life of their own Correct. and it creates doubt within the whole online media crew. You know, I read today, I'm sure that first, I read today yeah, for the first yeah. time a um, kind of a, a, a time, a, a, an hour by hour, minute by minute account of that cell phone. And, um, and, and quite frankly, I agree with someone who was quoted in this story that they may very well have had enough evidence to arrest him based on his cell phone activity and pinging and that the DNA was probably a prosecutor saying, you know what, you got to get some more. 
And I'm sure you've heard that, Phil, many times, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yes, heard well, you, you know, Mike. I was I, one of the guys telling you that. You got to get a little You, you know what's funny about that, Mike? Every time there was a discussion, I won't call it an argument, every case that I uh, remember, it was discussion between our office in Brooklyn South Homicide and the 6-0 squad and the DA's office. You guys won every one of those discussions. But you know what? For good reason. You had to try the case. I get yeah. it. Uh, at yeah. the time, we were probably a little bit dis, you know, disenchanted about it and saying, ah, we got enough, let's go ahead. We could always do that later on down the line. But you know what? It always turned out to be uh, for good reason, and it always worked out. So yeah, yeah I, I get it. I, I think there's definitely a parallel there with what you're talking about, that uh, prosecutors had to be involved in this case, district attorney's office uh, in that area of Idaho, uh, you know, kind of uh, given their uh, input on it and, you know, maybe directing certain things. Let's face it, this was a high-profile a quadruple homicide, and rightfully so, they had a right to be in there Absolutely. and uh, expect certain expectations of you know the investigation to move forward with the arrest. So that no that question. may very well be the reason no. that they waited until the the period of time that they waited to actually make the arrest. Hot Warrior Mama, thank you for the nine ninety nine super chat. What are the chances that his defense team takes advantage of the time window that the roommate did not call nine one one to make implicate someone else or another theory? Well. I think they're going to try everything, but Absolutely. the evidence will, will thwart whatever the defense tries to do. Uh, if the defense doesn't think very carefully about it and try to dissect the cell phone data and also the timeline and the eyeball witness, uh, the food delivered at 0400, there's a lot of little markers in there that create this timeline. Billy, I just want to make this point. Uh, DM will be, uh, in my opinion, will be viewed by the jury as they're going to have sympathy towards her. She's a survivor of a quadruple homicide. She was in that house. She could very easily have been slaughtered herself. And yeah. if she comes across as, uh, you know, here's my reason why I didn't call the police, whether it be she was frozen in shock, perhaps, and I think this is a possibility, perhaps the perpetrator walked right past her. She was in a darkened room and he didn't see her or he was in a, 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 a haste to get out of the location. Now, in the affidavit, it says that he exited through the rear sliding doors. I believe he entered through those sliding doors. One of the questions that I've had from day one, how did he know that that door was unlocked? Was he in that location before? Those are some of the things that I think the follow-up investigation, or maybe they're holding it back. They may already know what could reveal how he knew that. Was he given that information by a third person? Was he in that house before? That's going to be very important. It almost seems as if as he knew the layout of the house. He went in there with the intention of killing specifically perhaps uh, Gonzalez or whoever it was that was targeted. And he went in, he went out. I don't think he spent a lot of time there, perhaps a few minutes. Again, we cannot say for sure that he saw her. We don't know that. Maybe perhaps when she does testify in court that she will be able to shed light on whether or not she believed he saw her or, you know, what her reasons were for freezing, going into a catatonic state and, and maybe going to sleep. Perhaps she was uh, groggy from sleep and, and thought it was a dream. You know, she didn't, you know, uh, really, uh, it wasn't a conscious thing that she did. So she waited, went back in her room, perhaps scared, went back to sleep. And then, uh, as we know, police were called later that morning. I, I think as a defense attorney that if, I, I, if the defense attorney, I should say, tries to make her and her lack of activity or lack of, of, of uh, you know, Response. getting to the police or, or notifying people as something that 
something more than than what you've just talked about, Phil, that's a big mistake. That's a big mistake. I I, I would not. That's like blaming the victim for uh, right. you know for for the crime. That that's what I analogize it to. That would be a that would be a large um, uh, problem for the defense if they if they did that. So you know, keep in mind, guys, this jury is going to be made up of people who are like the families of these kids. I mean, it's going there. That's 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 who who's and and there. And I am sure they're not going to get twelve people who don't have children, um, and twelve people who perhaps don't have kids in in college or away from home or things of that nature. So you know you've got to be very careful and walk a fine line in trying to make DM something other than she is, which is a victim in this case. And, uh, and, and that would be a, a major mistake for the defense, in my opinion. You know, Mike, I had asked you and um, in your whole, because people find this unusual when we, when we say this, in your entire homicide career as a prosecutor, did you ever use a behavioral analyst? And your answer to me, well, I'll let you answer it right now. The did you ever is, use a behavioral analyst? Never, never, never. And not only did I try a lot of cases as a prosecutor, homicide cases, I also tried a lot of homicide cases as a defense attorney. And um, and and it was, you know, not that you would use someone necessarily as a defense attorney, but there's the possibility. But the bottom line is I've tried lots of cases. And the other side of the coin in terms of defense attorney is that I never saw a prosecutor use a behavioral uh, an analyst in any case that I ever tried. And I'm talking about uh, lots of lots of murder cases. When I was in the DA's office, Phil can tell you this and, you know, Bill, there were 2,000 murders in this city at that time, and a lot right. of them were in Brooklyn. I mean, I was trying case after case after case, and um, but I've never used the behavioral analyst at all, ever. So, With that in mind, I want to play a little bit of this. This is from News Nation with uh, Chris Cuomo. There, there are ambiguities about the evidence, but if we talk about the accused, and we've now shifted from a whodunit to a whydunit, the best place to start is what you know, and what you know are four victims, one person skipped, and apparently no relationship between the accused and the victims. Those are three very important facts. Um, if you could, you could look at it at first blush and say that it's a mass homicide and be expecting to find the qualities of an accused of a perpetrator of a mass homicide. And yet, what you pointed out in your introduction, he's a lot more functional than the dead-enders that are often uh, organizing their lives around the spectacle. So, so we're at a fork in the road to say, was this a crime of obsession or aspiration? I think from a forensic psychiatric standpoint, for us together, this is a good way to approach what we don't know about this yet. Was it obsession of a person who long nursed a desire to experience killing? A, a compulsion to kill uh, that that festered and eventually that he acted on, or was this an aspiration of someone who wanted to kill a number of people and to create a spectacle crime? Those are two very different paths, and yet here we are with an outcome of, of four tragically murdered victims, and yet we don't even know how it ended up as four. This may just have been with one person in particular being targeted and, and others also killed 
because they, they may have stood in the way of his escape or they may have been there. So there are just so many different things that, that um, remain yet to be resolved. But as I see it, the why done it begins with obsession versus aspiration. Very, the two very different um, uh, vectors and vehicles of crime. And when you look at what feeds the two different vectors, the crime scene itself, uh, the multiplicity of stab wounds, the goriness of it, uh, as described from the coroner, what does that suggest? Well, mass killers uh, don't often use a knife and don't often... Uh, and don't often uh, abuse and wound the victims to the degree that, that at least has been implied uh, to us. However, we also don't know uh, what degree of struggle was involved with each of the confrontations. So there, even there, there's uh, quite a bit of ambiguity. Uh, in, in mass killings, there's, there's very little effort devoted by the killer to thinking about what happens after the fact. Um, and, and in this case, uh, we know at least the accused remained in the area, but there were a number of efforts, at least that police are saying, uh, that prosecutors are saying, uh, that, that he undertook in order to avoid uh, detection. And, and that's the kind of thing that one would expect of an obsessional killer, of somebody who was acting on a drive and maybe um, with an idea uh, to be able to do it again uh, in the future. Uh, so I, I think that uh, the, the things that we need to, there, there's so many questions that have yet to be informed, but I think that if this accused is responsible, the most important uh, data point that we're going to learn is when it started, where it started, how it started, and how it worked its way through him uh, and his thinking and his actions and his choices until it culminated. And why these victims? Hey, thank you for. He was one of the most reasonable uh, behavioral analysts I've heard on any of the channels. I mean, again, he doesn't speak in absolutes. He speaks in uh, this could have happened. You know, this is why I think it happened. So uh, very good. But again, Mike, as you said, you never had a behavioral analyst. And I don't think, I mean, I think it helps the uh the audience and maybe the jury pool understand the, the who, what, where, how, and why. Well, we don't know a motive, but it doesn't really help the prosecutor or the defense. Uh, it doesn't help the prosecution get a conviction, and it doesn't help the defense to create uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Correct. What I was just what I was going to say, and, I, and along those same lines, is that if I'm the prosecutor in this case, if I have the kind of case that I believe that they have, where it's hard evidence that is going to ultimately be presented to the jury and then asking them at that point to convict them, then I'm not going anywhere near a behavioral scientist on the stand. I'm not putting them on because to me, the evidence is going to point, if it does, it's going to point to him. And you say to the jury at the end of the day, it's the science as well as the witness, as well as the forensic work and all of it is pointing in one direction. I, I don't need to know if it's an obsessive homicide or some other reason. I don't, you don't need to know that. And, and I don't think it's important for a conviction here for, uh, for, the, for the Idaho prosecutors to, to establish why 
this guy did this. Um, you know, we're back to that whole situation with with motive. It's not something that's necessary. And if you have the evidence, then you have it. You don't need to tell the jury why he did it. It's great for shows like like we're on right now. And it's great for the, you know, as you call them, the talking heads, Bill. But uh, but it's not necessary in a courtroom. Just put the evidence before the jury and argue how it speaks to conviction. And if you're the defense attorney, how it doesn't speak to conviction. So, you know. Yeah, so Mike, right. it sort of muddies the waters. Absolutely. 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 And, um, you know, there, there, it's going to be, it'll be nice for all of us to know, you know, where he first encountered these young ladies and this, this guy, if that is the case. I, I'd like to know that because, you know, I, I'm a fan of, true crime books and, and, and I, and I write them, but, and I would like to know that. And, and that would be important if I was writing the story of this case, but in terms of being a prosecutor and trying this case, I don't need any of that. All I need is the evidence that points to this particular individual, if it does. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's someone in the chat has, has asked this question. It's been asked before. And I tell you the truth. I really don't know the answer. And they're asking, Bill, can you please clear up the PCA, the vehicle number one reference? They're referring to the perp's vehicle as vehicle number one, which I think is a poor choice of, of title because that confuses witnesses by thinking, that, oh, is there a vehicle number two? Right. Of Why course, would they yeah. possibly na name the perp's vehicle, vehicle number one? And uh, Jerry Yen, thanks for asking that question. That is well, a I'm going to be quite honest. I don't know. Yeah, I don't it, either. It, it should be called subject vehicle, if anything. I don't Correct. think there's no vehicles that are being pointed to in this investigation, as far as I know. And, you know, Bill, just a little bit about motive. Uh, you know, there's been several people that have been, whether it be on news or on the Internet, talking about a girl that he went out with and, and how uh, she rebuffed his advances. And uh, there was also a friend of his that supposedly had a conversation with him about this case, a friend from school, a fellow student, where he supposedly, I don't know if it's uh, actually been, supposedly referred to it as a crime of passion. So again, is he throwing out a red herring by saying that, or is he actually relating to what he believed to be, uh, you know, what prompted him to do this? You know, uh, if he dealt with rejection women in the past, it's a, each time it was an attack on his self-esteem, and perhaps it just built this rage inside of him where he lashed out and planned this whole thing. I mean, I don't know if we come up with these motive unless this that he spoke to that can put some light on, you know, what was going through his mind regarding motive. But again, that point that I made before, I want to know how he knew to get into that house and get out of that house through that back door and, you know, basically undetected other than the fact that DM did encounter him. But uh, he was out without being detective, uh, being detected. And how did he know that? That's going to be real important. I, oh, Phil, uh, Phil, I think there's, there's, the that's an easy answer. That. Phil, that's an easy answer. He reconned that place 12 times. Yeah. Just watch the house. People yeah, are coming right. in and out of that door. It's not locked. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, he must have been there thing. maybe late in the evening, early in the morning, watching part. He's that, you know, people are coming in and out and the house isn't locked. Or perhaps let's—we don't know. Maybe he was inside of that house at one time during one of these parties. He it's very possible, and gone in there. But I, I'm certain that uh, 
law enforcement's going to be able to determine if he ever was actually inside of that house before. And that might be something that the defense may want to uh, use to their advantage. They, well, that's his DNA inside the house or whatever it is, a fingerprint, a shoe print, whatever it is. So again, those are some of the things I think that would definitely be prosecution. And yeah, you know, depending upon, upon the evidence that they have, the hard evidence of him being uh, of him in the house, um, the defense may very well want to place him there after a party or for a party or that kind of thing. But if the evidence is the, uh, the you know, the knife sheath, and that's the only thing that they have that places him in there, the defense doesn't want to go anywhere near that particular uh, uh, thing. They, they'll, they'll, they'll hope that the jury forgets that. But, um, but I believe, Bill, as that you're correct, that, that he, did a surveillance on that house many, many times, as we now know from the, the pinging of his of his cell phone. And it's not, to me, not so far-fetched that at one point, he, at, at late at night, he walked up onto that porch and tested that door to see if that door, you know, opened and whether it was locked or whether they kept it locked, you know? that That's very possible. I mean, you got four, you had six people in that house, right? Four o'clock in the morning, let's say on a Wednesday night, it's unlikely that any of them are awake, right? Particularly during school year. So he could very well have gone there to test that door and gone onto the uh, the porch to see if it if if they keep it open. So absolutely, and you know something, Mike, he's probably watching people come and go absolutely. through those sliding glass doors and realize it's not locked. That's where yeah. I'm going in. Yeah, you know, exactly. no exactly. no mystery there, folks. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like podcasts, real crime podcasts from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you're not, you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, share it to your friends, make comments. We love that. We love to go into the chat and read what you guys have to say. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And we have a YouTube channel membership with count them five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel membership, and we greatly appreciate our subs, our fans, and our friends. Yeah, I mean, this, this case is is unbelievable. And as we said, the hearing today, really, it was almost like a stall tactic. One of the things I wanted to bring up was, if this was New York, they would very well be talking about bail for this guy. As crazy as that sounds, that's how crazy New York is yeah, now. There's no question that they've been- that A judge can't even consider the danger to the community or flight risk, you know, in New York, they'd be actually discussing whether they're going to bail this guy. Correct. They would. They absolutely would. Um, and, you know, I don't think people should, uh, maybe they, the, the press did enough to make people believe that today was going to be something more than just, you know, kind of a scheduling thing. But, um, but I, and I don't, not familiar with the law in Idaho, but um, when, are they going to go to a grand jury with this case if they are? I mean, I, I don't know if if that's required or if they can do it by prosecutor's information. I'm just not not familiar with the Idaho law. But somewhere along the line, you know, you've got to establish that uh, that this is the guy, you know, that this is the guy that there's probable cause to to, uh, to you know, to have arrested him. And that the, a judge or a grand jury says there's enough to take him to trial. You know, I, I don't know when that's going to happen, but um, my judge, judge or jury trial. Um, 
I, I this is a this is a tough one. Um, there, you know, I would consider doing a judge trial with this case. I really would. Um, however, the old saw is the ju- prosecutor needs twelve. The defense only needs one. And you know, and if you get some nut on a jury, and there are plenty of nuts that sit on juries, then um, then this guy, uh, all he needs is one. And he and and the other thing is, if he's not convicted, it's a win. If he's just you know, if it's a hung jury, that's a win for him, because you never know what could happen uh, to witnesses and to evidence and things of that nature. So um, so I think as I'm talking to you, Bill, I think that I would stick with a jury trial in this case. Because of that, um, you know, because of, of what I said, I'm only if I'm the defense attorney. If I'm lucky, I get one crazy on the jury and I and I try my case to that person. You know, it's amazing to actually uh, a prosecutor when you think about it, our system, this adversarial system that must prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And the big thing is define reasonable, because I think a lot of people are losing the meaning of reasonable these days. Right, right. You know, generally, they just simply say for which you can give a reason. And, um, you know, and that's the uh, that's the doubt. But believe me, I've tried enough cases to have juries tell me that, um, you know, the slightest little thing turns out to be in their minds, reasonable doubt if they want to let the person go. Um, so, you know, it's um, it's it's a crapshoot for the prosecutor. It's a crapshoot for the defense attorney with a jury. Um, but I think that in this situation, I would go with the jury and and hope that I get somebody who is who's going to be who may be angry at the prosecutor, maybe angry at the government, maybe, you know, who knows. But um, I think a judge would be too would be Mike, too much. I'm of glad you brought that up. Because, Mike, I'm glad you brought that up because I had a homicide trial in government. Uh, Robert Knight, and he was 100 percent guilty. There was no question about a jury. A Quitted him, and then the jury forewoman sent after and she said, "We knew he was guilty. We just believe police for whatever reason. And is there any way we can do anything about it? Obviously, he was acquitted, got away with a murder, and there was right. nothing that anyone can do." Yep, yep. I heard. I had juries tell me that. Jury you never know what a jury's going to do. Yeah, a jury said to me not that we knew he did it, but we wanted just a little bit more evidence. You know, that's to make themselves feel better. And I used to say to them. Well, if you knew he did it, where right. do you think that came from? It came from the evidence that I gave you, that that's how the, that's the decision that you reached. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, at one point in my career, I used to go and, and try to meet jurors at the end of the case. <laughs> Towards the end of my career, I didn't bother going to talk to a jury because I never got anything that was valuable out of it. You know, I never did. Um, and, and it just made me, uh, you know, more angry to, uh, to go talk to them. And if I won the case... And I certainly didn't want to go talk to them at that point because what was I going to get out of it? I, I had done what my, I'd done my job, you know? So, Absolutely. Let me uh, play a little bit of this from News Nation again. This is. Sure. Give us more perspective on what happens next in this case. Forensic psychologist Gary Bricado and attorney Rachel Fizet. Gary, Rachel, thank you both so much for being here. Rachel, we're going to start with you. Is there anything that surprised you about this morning's hearing? This is not a surprising hearing. This is the defense asking for more time to prepare the case. And in this case, which is highly circumstantial at this point, I think that this is the right move. So they are waiving their time 
to have this heard quickly, but they are doing that so that they can prepare more thoroughly. All right. So, so, so Rachel, you say it's the right thing, you know, for the defense to do in your opinion. If you are the defense here, what is the most important thing for them to do right now? Right now, what I think they are trying to do, because it is so unlikely that they will get the trial thrown out or the uh, charges thrown out during the preliminary hearing phase. Right now, they want to ask all the possible questions that they can so that they can eventually poke as many holes in this case that is possible. So what they will try to do during this preliminary hearing in June is ask questions and they will attempt to just continue to learn all of the state's evidence that points to Coburger. All right, Gary, let, let's kick it over to you. You study mass murders. You've really dug into this case. You've profiled the killer. What do you think about any possible connection to the victims? That's what so many people want to know. Mm. Uh, in terms of possible relationship with the victims, it's very confusing because we have to remember that in some perpetrators, it doesn't have to be a literal connection to the victim. It could be symbolic. In other words, if somebody represents a group that has made you feel ostracized or rejected, that would be adequate for projecting uh, all kinds of hostility or fantasy onto them. Usually in cases like that, the idea is, is that you hone in on someone that you've accidentally encountered at school or on the street or at work that you are drawn to, and the other individuals surrounding the person who is the object of fixation um, are unfortunately caught up uh, in by association. Um, but of course, it's premature to say that. Uh, but it's one of the first things uh, I'm eager to hear uh, when the facts come out about this case. But it wouldn't be necessary uh, for there to be a direct relationship at all for this type of homicide. You know, and you certainly know, as we said uh, uh, just a moment ago, you study mass murders. Uh, so you think that if this was 10 years ago, Koberger either wouldn't have been caught or at least not this quickly. Tell us why. I do. I believe that several decades ago when DNA technology, cell phone technology, internet technology and other techniques were not available, the lack of clear motive and the lack of clear relationship with the intimates surrounding the victims um, would have made this case very baffling. It's very similar to what turns up in things like serial murder cases uh, where there's no clear linkage to the victims um, so that it takes this kind of technology to outpace that type of offender. So, Rachel, uh, before we go, let's kick it back to you. You know, we've spent weeks talking motive. Gary just mentioned it. Now, at the end of the day, how crucial will that be to the case? If I hear one more news reporter ask how important is motive, I'm gonna I'm gonna scream. You know, like they just they just they just not they're like the it's, it's like Rain Man. They're like Rain Man. They got they got to get an answer to something. There's no answer to. It, 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 the woman should have said it has no bearing at all on the case, but who knows what her answer was. Um, the guy made a very, very good point, however, but it was kind of an obvious point. She, first of all, the the the, the uh, commentator said 10 years ago. Well, 10 years ago, we had cell phones and we had DNA analysis, but the guy took it back several decades. He's right. He, at that point, you, di you did need more. You needed to have a connection, maybe an eyewitness or a fingerprint or some something. But um, but now we don't have that. So, I mean, now we don't need that because we have things like DNA and, and cell phone pinging and things of that nature. 
Um, so, you know, so he's, he's correct, but that has no bearing on whether or not you need motive or don't need motive. I, I just don't understand that, uh, you know, that way of thinking. I, I really don't. It's great to know for us, for people who do this kind of thing, you know, these, can we talk about this stuff? It's great for authors and people who write true crime books, but I, I don't, you know, it's not necessary to, uh, for, for a prosecutor to prove motive. And if I don't have it, and they may never have it in this case, I argue at the very beginning, as I've said before to you guys, that motive is not an issue. And it's not a a part of this case that needs to be considered or should be considered. So Miss Dog Lover, thank you for the 449 449 pound you. super chat. This case is massive and global. Special report on the national TV news in the UK today. So brutal and hope we won't see anything like it again. And uh, we feel the same way. Thank Absolutely. you for your uh, your comments. Yeah, you know, I think uh, what what he was sort of meaning is that, you know, serial killers are, are, are quite rare. It is a quite rare phenomena because they don't get to become serial killers because of the technology of today right. catches them after their first incident, after their first murder. And not all the time, but I'm just saying serial killers are, are quite rare because of that reason. One other thing I just want to point out about the press that drives me crazy, and in the chat, you can eviscerate me if you want for, for this remark, but every day they come out and go, breaking information on the Idaho case, and they repeat something that we've known for a week. It just drives me out of my mind. I like crazy Eddie. It's driving me insane. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know what, Mike? I want to just piggyback a little what you're talking about with the DNA. Just think about this. Now, if my cousin's grandson commits a crime now that's three three generations away or, or you know three down and i'm in the database let's say of 23 and me or one of the genealogy sites you can get familiar dna and tie him to me in the uh in the in the dna world so it's been so so uh advanced at this point oh, that you now you have the familiar dna and that's how this case was solved through familiar dna linking to the father but it goes all the way to third cousins and i think that that's just amazing it's really really just unbelievable and then again we talked about the touch dna just touching the surface you're leaving your dna uh you know your dna fingerprint so to speak on that surface and the snap may have been, we don't know if it's blood DNA or touch DNA, but that little bit of DNA was collected and it was really the link to the whole case. You know, and, and the thing that you can't, that you can't, that it's very difficult for a defense attorney to argue away is the science. And um, that's why even in the OJ case, they didn't argue away the science. They argued the way that the, that the police collected and argued that the stuff was contaminated um, and things of that nature, but it's hard to, and almost, I don't say impossible because nothing is impossible, but it's very, very difficult to argue away the science of how they came to the conclusion that they did whatever that DNA was on that snap on that sheath. Um, that's, uh, that's going to be a very difficult thing for the defense attorney to, uh, to get around. I, I still believe it's the strongest piece of evidence in the case. And then when you couple it, with what we've been talking about, and that's the surveillance evidence, you know, 12 times. What was he doing at that house 12 or 14 times? I mean, if I'm the prosecutor, I argue, I know what he was doing. He was trying to figure out when and how uh, the best time was for him to go in there and do what he wanted to do. So, um, you know, so those two things, and again, that's science. I mean, the cell phone stuff 
is, you know, is, is, is scientific in nature. It's tech, but it's scientific in nature in terms of, 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 you know, so, so science has played uh, as the increase or the, the advance of science in, in this world is just, um, it, it helps and sometimes hurts in a courtroom, depending upon what side of the, of the lawsuit you're on, you know? Absolutely. You know, Mike, this was uh, something that, um, Ashley Banfield came out with, and they think there's a site where potentially uh, Brian Koberger was posting on Reddit. Now, I don't know if they know this for a fact, but it's like he had information that was only known to the investigators at the time. And they made, I want to play a little bit of this, and we'll, after okay. I play, we'll comment on it. The Reddit posts of a particularly savvy follower of the Idaho murders, who it sure seems may have had firsthand knowledge of the crime. Joining me now are retired FBI Special Agent Jennifer Koffendoffer, forensic psychologist Chris Mohandi, and trial lawyer Trent Copeland. Welcome to all three of you. Uh, Jennifer, I want to begin with you because as I've been reading these, I find very disturbing um, posts, uh, almost braggadocious, as though this person knew exactly what happened in that house well before the affidavit told us some things about that house. I also felt like there was a similarity in the attitude and the writing style between the the Facebook poster named Papa Roger and the uh, Reddit poster named Inside Looking. Is that just me or do you see that too? Because you look with a whole other set of eyes. Well, there definitely is a similarity. Um, just as you said, in their style and their confidence, in their uh, details, in details that indeed in many instances, only the killer or the police know. So from those standpoints, yes, you hit the nail on the head. And if that's the case, um, they become a, a lot more uh, evidentiary. Uh, I would assume, Trent, that all of a sudden, if well, I don't have the tools that the FBI has, the, the things that used to be in Jennifer Koffendorfer's suitcase are magic. Um, they can subpoena ISP information, et cetera. But Trent, do you see that as something that could be just mana from heaven for prosecutors if they can link accounts from facebook to reddit that brag about all these things and they're accurate and they were well before that was made public is that just sort of like it's almost a smoking gun i think it is and um and look here's what's important not just that it was braggadocio not just that it was um he had a keen interest in the case but if it can be established that from the timing and the sequence that he knew things and he was, you know, publishing things on Reddit as as these various people that he claimed to be on in these chat rooms. If that can be established, that he knew these things before police knew them, before they were publicly available, then those things are huge from an evidentiary standpoint. And so this reminds me a lot of, you know, the BTK killer. Remember him, Ashley. It was his bragging. It was him mocking the police. It was him sending floppy disks to the police about the crimes that got him arrested and that was his undoing. So these things can have enormous evidentiary value. These things, you know, killers of this nature tend to want the attention. They tend to want to be the smartest person in the chat room, so to speak. And in this instance, this could very well be another linchpin in addition to the DNA, in addition to the cell um, towers, in addition to all the other things that the police currently have. This could also be one other thing. And as you say, Ashley, it could really carry the day. You know, one of the things that concerns me about that is, first of all, 
if that is him posting before this information, they can find it out very easily through, you know, subpoena the ISP, find out if it's, that's his computer. They've already taken his computer. They should already know this if, if this is a fact. But the other problem with this is there were so many leaks in this case. I know people out there in the land of broadcast media that knew there was an eyeball witness way before anyone else knew it. And so that's a problem. Could someone find that out through maybe they have law enforcement in the family and someone opens their mouth and then someone starts posting things on Reddit and posting things in other places on the, uh, on the internet. So I, I wouldn't really think that this is smoking gun evidence. I, I go ahead, Phil. You, you have- well, what I was going to say is bill, if, if they can establish that he was on uh, that Reddit site now, if the IP address comes back to his computer and then they take his computer and they can see that he was posting on it or his cell phone or his laptop, whatever it was, I think that's slam dunk evidence because uh, they know that the uh, knife sheet was left at the scene. And now he's discussing that and saying that he believes that the knife sheet would le- was left at the scene. And that's something that very, very few people knew about, perhaps only the uh, investigators on the inside of the case. So I would think that that's, again, uh, another piece of circumstantial evidence, but I think it's very strong circumstantial evidence. If they can, uh, they, they, they probably have the answer to that already, whether or not they, they may have already uh, you know, discounted that it's not him or it is him, but I don't think it's that hard to figure it out. Like we said, they, they have the computer, they have the cell phone, uh, they could also subpoena the uh, you know, Reddit and and get the IP address of who was making those postings. So again, if it is him, I think that's pretty strong. So you know, so guys, the thing that I used to re- I remember from my days as a prosecutor is that you know you we had some when cell phones were became and every uh, every person had one kind of thing. Um, you know that the the people used to be cautious to me or, or were very cautious sometimes and say, look. The fact that it came from that phone doesn't mean that he had that phone. It means that the phone was at this particular spot and you still have to establish that the person has that phone that you're trying to connect it to. So, you know, for people like this to say, oh, it's great. Of course, it's great evidence. It's smoking gun evidence. If you can put him at that computer and then you and the evidence that he or the the statement he is making is the kind of thing that only the killer would have known. Well, then it becomes very, it's very, very, very powerful evidence. But that is, those two things are a huge leap in terms of putting them there and, and, and him behind that computer. I mean, even you could say, well, you know, that, that, that computer was in his house or in his apartment or wherever it was, but he lived in a dorm uh, or he lived in a place or that, that other people were around in a college place. Anybody could have used it. Okay. Okay. But other people could have used it. So I don't disagree that it's smoking gun evidence. If you can establish all of the things that, that they talked to, you can't just jump to the conclusion a, that what he's saying was not known to, was not known to the public and only known to the killer or the police. That's something which has to be established. Then you've got to establish that it was him who knew all of that stuff. Then you've got to establish that it was him who was behind that computer or on that 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 keyboard putting all that stuff together, so it it's not as easy as uh, it was made out to be, in my opinion, in that last clip. Um, but I disagree with that gentleman. If you had it, that's smoking gun evidence. If you can establish all of those things, absolutely. Uh, Kim M two, thank you for the one ninety nine super sticker. 
cheated no more. Thanks for being here to give all perspectives dealing with this sad case. I appreciate all of you. Thank you, cheated no more for the five dollar super chat and also for your kind words. You know, we Mike, what we spoke about before, this could be all part of that. You know, why was a gag order put on his apartment? Well, maybe this is the exact reason because maybe he was, uh, you know, doing the Reddit from his computer and they didn't want that out there to the media that, in fact, that was him. Without a doubt. If the, uh, and I'm sure that the prosecutor asked for the for, asked for the, um, you know, for the for the uh, the gag order because um, a defense attorney is not going to defense attorney is going to want as much information as possible, not necessarily. And they're going to get it when they get discovery. But they don't want it twisted and turned and 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 shaded in a certain way so that when a jury sits down and they listen to the case, they say, well, you know what? I remember that so-and-so said this back in January of 2023, and that was not what they said because you couldn't – somebody – if the gag order is not there, then, then it's open season for anybody to make conclusions, to, to uh, you know, to make sup, uh, suppositions about evidence – so um, you're right, Bill. That's why there's a gag order because of of what we've just um, we've just listened to. I, Absolutely, I, I agree. Michelle Playden, thank you for the ten dollars super chat. Bill and Phil, you are the best ones covering this case and always give the best insight. Husband and I watch religiously, but never catch you live. Keep up the great work, and please shout out my hubs, Justin. Justin, how are you? All right, <laughs> there's Justin. A, there's a shout out. So you know, it's of course. This case is going to be continue to be investigated, both from the prosecutorial side and from the defense side. But right now, I mean, it's I don't know if it's going to take a hiatus in the media. I doubt it, because whenever they uh, don't have anything new, they just invent something new to, to report on this. And uh, we try to stay with the facts with this and where the evidence is going. Uh, but th th it seems like every day there are new things coming out. But as it goes along, the case gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And I think it's a it seems like it's going to be a really good case for the prosecution. I agree. You remember when we were talking about this on another show very early on um, when we knew almost nothing and um, and we, we people we were talking about how the prosecute, not the prosecutors, but the cops were being criticized because they were taking their time. They were nothing was happening. How did how does it take so long to do this? Well, we find out now that they were actually doing a great a great deal at that point. They were investigating the case and doing what they should have done. So my point is that from the point that they arrested him until today, they're continuing to investigate. They're continuing to analyze. They're continuing to do all of the things that cops, prosecutors, scientists and technicians do, because at the end of the day, all of that stuff hopefully will be presented to a jury um, and, and it will prove or not prove, you know, what, uh, who the killer was in this. Mike, right, not sure, not long after the arrest, uh, they were talking about 400 uh, tips came in post arrest. It's probably a lot more now of or maybe different interactions that people had with him and stuff like that. So again, now that you have 400 more tips, those have to be investigated. Some of them could be very relative, uh, relevant to the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I'm very curious to learn more about this, um, this DoorDash, you know, the guy that came to the door to deliver the food. Sure. Um, because if you, if you, if you, if you believe the time that, that, that person was there, then perhaps 
Kohlberger was in the house. I mean, there's there's a there is a, a an overlap, unless I'm wrong about that. But I'm really curious as to um, you know as to what it is that guy or that woman saw or didn't see that. Um, well, that that delivery was about four a.m. And they think that the uh, murders took place around 4.13, I guess. So it's okay. a few minutes before is what is what, listen, don't hold me to it, but that's what I'm remembering as far as the, uh, the, the delivery around four. And again, I think he's out the door at around 4.17. Okay. So again, uh, let's give him a five minute window of being inside the house, five to maybe eight minutes, I guess. And so it's probably a little bit before the, the murders uh, actually take place. Well, again, but- a good point though, because- Perhaps he did see the the vehicle the car. Know, running, yeah. or so he could have seen a figure walking down the street that fit uh, Kohlberger's description. There's a lot of things that I'm sure that that person. Well, was- you know, they they also have video of him pulling his car into the back parking lot. Yes, yeah. So yeah. It, it's so. I mean, all, there's so many dots that are connected that are so powerful when you put all of this stuff together, and then you know, marry that to the cell site information. Absolutely. And- and the eyewitness information and all this, the timeline actually became, I think uh, it was narrowed down to like 17 minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, a lot it's, of, a lot it's of getting very, very tight. Exactly. It's getting tight. And, and Bill, just to add something to the cell phone technology, cause Mike brought up, you know, a doubt that could be brought up. Well, who had the cell phone? Well, uh, Brian Kohlberger still had possession of the cell phone up until the time he was arrested. So, I mean, what I would say if I were a, a prosecutor, if his defense tries to bring up a point, well, maybe never cell phone. Well, I, the next thing I would say is, well, perhaps your client would like to take the stand and discuss who he loaned the cell phone to. Uh, yeah. Perhaps, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, I'm going with that, Mike. I mean, let, let, him, let him get on the stand and testify because we know he's never going to take the stand in this case. Well, Heart was- warrior mama. Thank you for the 499 super chat. Based on what we know so far, any idea that he could have been hired? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's, you know, that hot warrior mama, I think that could be a conspiracy theory. I don't think so. Uh, Jane, I don't get that. Jane Morin, he never would have waived speedy preliminary if he knew there wasn't enough evidence, which means his apartment was a gold mine. Jane Moore, Jan Morin, I happen to totally agree with you. Absolutely. 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 Why would there be a gag order? There's got to be something there, or else there wouldn't be a gag order. No question. No question. And you know, it's in the back of the defense attorney's mind. I'm going to ask for June. It's January, right? That's six months away. And my client's sitting in jail. Well, her theory is well, this guy's going to be in jail for the rest of his life because she knows the quality of the evidence and the strength of the evidence. Otherwise, what do you want? You want to get to a jury. You want to get a trial immediately. You don't want to wait six months. It, it's um, it, it, and I know that that's something which maybe I'm the only person who thinks that way. But I, I, I'm I could remember clients saying we when when you get a Germans and in Brooklyn time I was trying cases as a defense attorney. You know it took a long time to get to trial. And if you get into the courtroom, the judge says, okay, this is adjourned for a month. I have had people turn to me and say a month I'm sitting in jail. I want to go to trial now, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, I think that they know, she knows the defense attorney knows at this point that this guy's goose is cooked. That's my feeling. I, I, quite frankly, I was very surprised, um, not from a technical point of view, but from a, you know, from a human point of view that, this guy's going to sit in jail six months before they get to what is 
a preliminary hearing. That that is that that's incredible. You know, in some cases in New York, you gotta you, after an arrest, you got like five days to get to an indictment. Yeah, uh, you know. So, um, but so I think that that your 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 listener or viewer who posted that is very very correct is correct about you know what what the state status of the evidence is and um, and how they know that. You know, this guy's this guy's not gonna get not gonna walk away from this. Absolutely. Magical Mary, thank you for the 499 super chat. Found info on government site for grand jury state summaries that ID can use grand jury or preliminary hearing. Well, I think this has to go to a grand jury, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, it does. It does. It has to. So what they're doing is what we used to do in, in Brooklyn when I first started in the DA's office. You're in a in a criminal court, a case comes in and you set up a hearing. Like with that same day, cop gets on the stand to say what it was that caused him to arrest this particular guy. Preliminary hearing was done. That was then held over for a grand jury. That's all you had to establish, what it was. And as long as it was legal, then it would go to a grand jury. The grand jury is to establish whether there was a crime committed and whether there's reasonable cause to believe that the person charged is the one who committed the crime. If that's established in the grand jury, then you go to trial. There's one other way to do it. The defense waives a grand jury and 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 uh, and permits the prosecutor to prosecute him based on a prosecutor's information, which is simply a document that says the same thing that the grand jury says, which is probable cause to believe that their crime was committed and that that uh, he was the one who committed the crime. That's all you need. So this lady is right. It's preliminary hearing first and grand jury second. In Brooklyn, we used to bypass the hearing altogether and go to the grand jury immediately if we felt that we had enough and and um, so that you don't have to have an extra evidentiary uh, discovery kind of thing where the, the, the defense attorney gets a shot at one of the witnesses in the case and creates a, a record. So, um, so that's why I'm surprised that there's a preliminary hearing. Maybe the Idaho law requires it. I, I don't know. But if I'm a prosecutor, I don't like that. I'd rather go right to the grand jury and, and, and seek an indictment. Absolutely. Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, as well as a terrific criminal defense attorney. Well, guys, we've been on the air for an hour and six minutes. I think it's time for um, final, uh, final words. Mike, I'm going to let you go first. Mike, your final words. Well, I think that the defense has a, um, a very difficult road ahead of them. I really do. I think that, as I said before, the, the defense, the, the pro cops, prosecutors, the scientists, the technicians are not stopping in terms of, of, of looking at this evidence and, and hopefully creating more evidence that's going to wind up convicting this guy. And that's their hope. Um, so I, I really do believe that, um, you know, <laughs> she's got a tough road and um, I wish her luck. Absolutely. Phil? Last words. Uh, 
I just want to mention the names, Ethan Chapin, Zana Carnoodle, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonzalez. Uh, Ethan was one of three uh, kids. He was a triplet, one of the triplets. His two siblings returned to college today to that Idaho State College. And again, uh, just keep these people in your thoughts and prayers. They're real people that were slaughtered on that day. Uh, God bless their souls and uh, keep the families uh, in your prayers and thoughts. And uh, let's hope that everybody stays strong and we get the justice that we deserve in this case. And uh, again, just keep them in your thoughts and prayers. You know, Phil, uh, when you said that, that totally shook me is that um, the other two siblings of Ethan uh, Chapin uh, go to the University of Idaho. And yeah. just think of how difficult it must be for them to go back to school. I mean, strong kids, strong kids. God bless they have you. An, yeah, they have an amazing family, but absolutely uh, no less difficult. Even with that, it just the, the, uh, the mom was quoted as saying, "We have no time for the." I guess I, I forgot the exact word she used, but uh, the negative thoughts. Uh, they're moving forward. I give them a lot of uh, a lot of uh, props on that. God bless them, and uh, yeah, those two kids. I, I that that's a tough tough thing to do to return to that college. You're not kidding. That's why that. Why that jury selection is going to be very difficult for the defense when they start picking a jury. Absolutely. All right, folks, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. On behalf of uh, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, retired Detective Phil Grimaldi, and former Brooklyn District Attor Assistant District Attorney, Chief of the Homicide Bureau, Michael Vecchioni, have a great night, and thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay Good night, safe, folks. Everyone. One episode. Sing the